I have a message today. Hopefully we always do, but something God has really been speaking to me about this week. I stand before this pulpit with fear and trembling today because this is a strong message. Uh, it may be a little different than what your theology is used to because it's a little different to what my theology has been used to. God has been correcting me on a few things this week, and I believe, as always, when we turn to the Word of God, we can see things more clearly. And I, I want to pray once again that the Holy Spirit would be in control here today and that He would enable me to rightly divide the Word of truth. Let us pray. Father, what an awesome thing that You even allow us to speak on Your behalf or to speak about You. And honestly, we know so little about You, Lord, and yet You let us represent You you let us speak about you and even speak for you. And Lord, it's an awesome and a fearful thing. And I pray, oh God, that you would enable me to rightly divide the word of truth. And you would give us ears to hear not what man is saying, but to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Oh God, we humble ourselves. We open our hearts. We open our ears. We pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth as you have promised, O oh Father. Bless each one here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I want to speak to you today about the love of God. And everybody's probably thinking, oh boy, this is going to be fun. Well, I like to talk about the love of God. And I don't believe this is going to be a message that will get you jumping and dancing. Not that this is a jumping and dancing kind of a church. Maybe we can work on that in the future. But uh, I don't think this is going to be something where you're going to go, Wow, I really love that message today. And I really don't care. I don't say that arrogantly, but that's not my purpose. It's not to entertain or to get people to jump and dance. I want to rightly divide God's Word. And all week long, God has been speaking to me about some things that I think are extremely important for our day, our culture, and the time in which we find ourselves living. And as I say, I want to speak to you about the love of God, but maybe a little bit different than what you're expecting. We know from the Bible that God is love. That's very clear. God is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. And we saw recently that God has eternally loved his son. From before the creation of the world, Jesus said, Father, you have loved me. So love is something eternal that we can hardly even grasp with our little brains. But we do know a couple of things very clearly from Scripture. God is love. We do know that his, his love is eternal. We do know that his love is unfailing. We know that in many ways, God's love is unilateral. Let me explain what I mean by that. God is always the one who initiates. We love God because he first loved us, the Bible says. God has always initiated with his love. But here comes the catch. Is God's love, as we are often told and as I have often preached, is God's love unconditional? There's a difference. God's love is unfailing. God's love is eternal. God's love is unilateral. But is it unconditional? And 
To begin, I think we need to define a few terms. First of all, what is unconditional? And better still, to understand unconditional, what does conditional mean? And I looked up the definitions. Unconditional means not subject to or limited by any conditions. Not subject to or limited by any conditions. Conditional, on the other hand, means subject to one or more conditions or requirements being met. It is made or granted on certain terms. Okay? And what I want to do this afternoon is break this down into three parts. We're going to look at three different aspects. This idea of God's love being unconditional, where did the idea come from? Secondly, and this is always the most important place to look for answers to any questions about anything, what do the scriptures say? And let me just put in another plug for Bible study. We do Bible study on Wednesdays, and you don't even need to leave the comfort of your reclining chair. All you need to do is pick up a telephone, turn on your iPhone, or get on a computer. It's very easy now, and you don't even have to be here in Maryland. Matter of fact, we'll be broadcasting this week from our Ohio studio. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully we get all the electronics working. But I really want to encourage you, if you're not doing it, become a part of our Bible study. We need to know what the Scriptures say about many, many things, because in these last days... There are all kinds of things flying around in the media, in churches, on the news, in books and in magazines. And we need to be able to listen and carefully discern through the filter of God's word. What do the scriptures say about this? And the way this message came about, about a week ago, I was in prayer one morning. How many of you know what it is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you? I am so glad for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps me daily, even in mundane things like remembering where I put my keys or remembering where the car is. The Holy Spirit is good. He speaks to us. And very often, my experience anyway, He surprises me because I'm not expecting what I hear. And one morning last week, it was a nice day. I was just praising the Lord and waiting on the Lord, and all of a sudden I heard the Lord speak to me, my love is not unconditional. You have been misrepresenting me. I'm like, oh God. And I suddenly remembered how many hundreds of times I've, I've told people, God loves you no matter what. God's love is unconditional. And I felt the Holy Spirit not scold me, but I felt him correcting me and saying, you need to go back to the word. And search this thing out. So I was doing that all week. And the more I searched, the more I realized I was wrong. And the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on something. How many of you know, I've been a Christian for 40 years. How many of you know God does a little bit at a time in our life? If he were to try to correct all the mess inside of us in one single day, I think we would just explode. So he just deals a little bit at a time. And so, for whatever reasons, God decided this past week to start correcting something 
in my thinking and in my theology. And hopefully I'll be able to pass some of that along to you this afternoon. What do the scriptures say is the second aspect we want to look at. And then thirdly, what should be our attitude or response? Based on the truth of scripture, how should we act? What should our attitude be based on that truth? Very briefly, I want to look at this first aspect. And I think this is an important place to start. Where did this idea come from? And you might be a little bit surprised to find out it's a very modern idea. The early church fathers never spoke about God's love being unconditional. Oh, they spoke and wrote extensively about God's love, but never did they use that terminology, unconditional love. Matter of fact, the term seems to trace back to the 1960s when you had the hippie, free love, flower children movement. And I know this is going to take a real lot of faith this morning, but I was a part of that movement. I was a long haired hippie. Yes, you got to believe it's a test of faith, but trust me, I was a part of that. So that whole free love, unconditional love, that's where the terminology began out of the hippie drug culture of the 60s and slowly as often happens these things creep into the church and they actually become ingrained into our theology without anybody saying hold it time out where is that in the scripture which leads me to the second part which we're going to take a little bit more time with what do the scriptures really say now you might want to fasten your seatbelts here and some of these things maybe you've never heard before Maybe you have, but I made up my mind some years ago that from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, all of this is God's word. And I am not going to leave anything out because it doesn't fit with my theology or because I don't like it. I want all of this and I want to understand all of it as much as the Holy Spirit enables me. The term unconditional love is never found in the Bible. At least the translations I'm familiar with, which are the NIV, the New American Standard, King James, New King James. Some of the real modern ones I, I can't speak for, but they twist a lot of things, so we're not going to even go there. But in the mainline translations of the Bible that we have in English, the word unconditional love is never found. That's rather surprising. Here's a question that I started this search for my own. Does God love everyone? Don't answer that too quickly. And here's where we've already gone wrong often. We confuse a number of things and maybe you're already asking, yeah, but what about John 3:16? God so loved the world. Don't worry, we're going there. But does God love everyone? Well, let's start with Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. And this is not an obscure verse from the Old Testament because Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 9. It's a very important passage. I have loved you, says the Lord. How many of you are glad for that? I am. I am glad God loves me. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, and he's of course speaking to the people of Israel, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob 
but Esau I have hated. It's the word of the Lord. Whether or not we fully understand that matters not. It's the word of God. And we can already see that there's at least one individual mentioned by name in the Bible that God not only did not love, he hated. That's strong stuff, folks. Strong stuff. I don't know about you. I don't want to be hated by God. I want to be loved by God. And I want to do whatever I've got to do to position myself and keep myself in a place where I can abide in God's love. Psalm 5, beginning with verse 4 down to verse 6. Psalm 5, 4 to 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Uh Uh-oh. You what? You what? You hate all who do wrong. Verse 6. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. And some of you, I'm sure, are already thinking, yeah, but this is Old Testament. By the way, let me just insert a little thought here. God didn't get saved at the end of the Old Testament. He didn't suddenly become a nice guy from Matthew onwards. And it's interesting, in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, where we were just reading, is where God states boldly and plainly, I am the Lord, I change not. Not there by accident. This is who God is. God hates wickedness. He loves righteousness. But it goes further than that. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. What does it say in the book of Revelation 21? What's God going to do on that final judgment day? Say, all right, guys, I was only kidding. I forgive everyone. Revelation 21.8, read with me. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, The murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, does that sound like a place where you would want to send people that you love? Because this is a place of wrath, eternal wrath and anger. That's a little different from love in my place. I'm sorry. You hate all who do wrong and you destroy those who tell lies. Let's look at another passage in Psalms quickly. Psalm 11 verses 5 and 6. The Lord examines the righteous, uh oh, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. I don't know about you, but we're hearing all too often now in the news about a school shooting or a bombing or random killings and and terrible, terrible violence. Something turns inside of me when I hear about these things. And I'm, I'm made in the image of God, but I'm nowhere close to God himself. Can you imagine how God feels as he looks down and sees the violence, the bloodshed, the hatred, the divisions, the things that are tearing society apart? It grieves his heart. 
And that's why he's made a judgment day. And that's why there will be a number of people assigned to that place that we just read about in Revelation chapter 21. But it gets even a little bit clearer in this next scripture. Hosea chapter 9. Unconditional love is normally presented in the way that God loves you no matter what and he can never stop loving you and that will never change. This next scripture, I'm sorry, is going to blow that theology out of the water. Hosea chapter 9. How many of you are ready to kill me? Praise the Lord. I'm leaving for Ohio tomorrow, so it'll give you a week to cool off. Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. God is speaking to Israel now, not to the the heathen, not to the non-believers. He's speaking to his own people here. Hosea 9, 15. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. This is God talking to Israel. I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Wow. I got to be honest with you. I never noticed this verse in 40 years of reading the Bible. Somehow I just, I never really zeroed in on what God is saying here. He says, because of all their wickedness, I hated Israel and I will no longer love them because all their leaders are rebellious. This is strong stuff, folks. And if nothing else, I think it gives all of us cause to stop and examine what do we really think about God? Who do we think God is? Is our concept of God in line with what we are seeing here in the scriptures? Or do we need to make some adjustments? Now, let me come back to what I know is probably in a lot of people's minds, but what about John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's look at that verse, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is something that I would like to refer to as God's merciful love for the world. And you could argue that that is unconditional. God did that regardless of the sinfulness, the wickedness of man. This was something that God unilaterally did. He decided to send his son to be the remedy to our sin sickness. He didn't ask our permission. He didn't consult with us. He did it. It was a, it was an act of his love that he so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. But notice right there in John 3:16, there is a condition. What's the condition? Whoever believes. So even there, there's a condition. He loved the world, meaning he has now graciously, unilaterally offered his son. He's made full provision for anyone and everyone on this planet to come out of darkness into his marvelous light, come out of sin into a relationship with God. In that sense, yes, he's unconditionally loved us. But... There's a condition. If you want to be saved, you got to believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. The Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. Second Peter tells us that. He doesn't want anyone to perish. First Timothy 2 tells us he wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So these are all expressions of God's heart. He loves the world. He loves all people, but he made a provision. And now there are conditions if we want to participate in and benefit from that provision, namely his son. Ezekiel 18, it tells us God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Let, let me tell you something. God's not going to be rejoicing when we experience what we just read about in Revelation 21. He, he's not looking forward to that. He, he doesn't uh, get excited about the prospect of hurling people into the flames of everlasting hell. He doesn't take any pleasure in that. That's why in his love, he made provision for all men to be saved. The closer we look in Scripture the more we actually find there are numerous conditions and requirements that man must meet in order to be reconciled to a holy God. And I want to talk a little bit about that word reconcile or reconciliation. It's a term that I find very few in churches understand, and that's sad. Because it's really at the root and foundation of our whole salvation. And if you and I don't understand reconciliation, I don't know if we can truly understand or even appreciate the cross and the salvation that was made available there. And here again, I turn to the dictionary to help us reconcile. You probably have some idea of what it means. But it means to restore friendly relations to reestablish a close relationship, to settle, to resolve, or to bring back into agreement. And notice all of those definitions imply that there's been some sort of a breakdown in the relationship. Right now, you're not friendly. Right now, you're not enjoying a close relationship. And there are some issues, some problems that need to be resolved. So when we talk about being reconciled to God, and that's a term found often in the New Testament, we need to understand a couple of things. In this case, we've got God and us, two different parties that need to be reconciled, okay? Well, first of all, God didn't do anything wrong. I'll say that again. God didn't do anything wrong. So guess what? We got problems. But you know, the Bible talks about this thing in two different directions. And let me read to you just two verses. They both speak about reconciliation. And I want you to notice they both talk about enemies being reconciled. Okay? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Because of sin, because of the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, ever since then, there was a breakdown between God and man. And it wasn't just a small problem. We've talked about this at length here, but there were huge cosmic consequences because of that one disobedience. And here it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of evil behavior. Next verse. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death 
to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice this reconciliation, it was all unilaterally done by his provision of Christ. But who were the enemies here? Go back to verse 21. Who are the enemies? Go like this. <laughs> I was God's enemy. And if you were God's enemy, you were in need of reconciliation. And if you haven't been reconciled, I would strongly recommend that you do it today because it's not a good thing to be an enemy of God. But Paul writing to the believers in the Colossian church, he said, you were once alienated, cut off from God, just like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. You have been alienated ever since then from God and enemies in your minds. You may think, well, I was never really an enemy of God. I always kind of liked God. No, 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 sorry, that doesn't fly. Our, our whole mindset was a sinful mind, self-centered mind, arrogant, proud, rebellious, I'm going to live for myself kind of a mindset. And the Bible says that makes you an enemy of God. What about God's attitude toward us? Romans chapter 5. Here we find the other side of the equation that we were also God's enemies. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. And notice the frequent mention here of love. Paul is trying to make a very important point here in his teaching to the Romans. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, here it is again, Christ died for the ungodly. That unilateral provision of God's love for all mankind. He gave his only son. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now pause it right there. If there's any place where I can argue God's love is unconditional, it's here. God's love for the world that was demonstrated on the cross in sending his son into the world, it had nothing to do with you and me. We didn't have to meet any conditions. As I mentioned earlier, he didn't need our permission. He didn't consult with us. God in his eternal love chose to send his son as an expression of his love. However, that's not the end of the story. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, next verse. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, we're going to learn more in the next few verses, but we're already learning that before this all happened, God had some wrath toward us. We need to be saved from God's wrath. This isn't wrath on the homosexual or the murderer. This is wrath that was on you and me. That's why we need to be reconciled. For if, when we were God's friends, uh-oh, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Man, it's no small thing to be able to say, I am reconciled. 
because I was God's enemy and he had a strong feeling of wrath toward me because of this opposition in my life, this rebellion, this sin that had taken over my life. And as long as that sin and that mindset is in place, we are an enemy of God. Thus, the critical need for bringing enemies back into a close friendship, back into a close relationship. And this is all done, again, unilaterally. It's not by me racking up enough brownie points that God says, okay, I'll be your friend again. God reconciles with us because of his son. No other reason. He doesn't reconcile with you because you're good looking or you sing well or you're a good preacher or X, Y, or Z. He reconciles you back to himself because of the blood of his son, because of the sacrifice on Calvary, nothing else added to it. I want to suggest four conditions Four simple conditions that God expects from you and me if we are going to enter into this reconciliation, if we are going to enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose on the third day. That is finished. That is history. We cannot add to that. We cannot take away from that. God so loved the world that he did that part. But now he has stated very clearly, I'm going to keep it simple today, four simple requirements that must be met in our lives. These are not things that we have to do to somehow uh, say, God, look how good I am or look how righteous I am. These are things we must do to receive the benefits of that sacrifice. Number one, and this is deliberately placed at the beginning because this is where Jesus placed it, repent. Repent. Repentance is an absolute requirement to come into God's love. And this is where things are getting real wacky in these last days, even in churches and in a lot of people's theological thinking. The, the reasoning goes something like this. God loves us so much, I can continue living any old way and God is still going to love me. He's going to accept me. I'm going to go to heaven because I call on the name of Jesus. Even though I'm living in adultery, even though I'm lying and cheating on my taxes, I'm a swindler in my work, I'm greedy, I never give any money to God, but, you know, he loves me. More and more now we're hearing about homosexual churches where the leadership is homosexual the members of the congregations are living in homosexual sin and they're all praising the Lord and patting each other on the back because they're all going to heaven and God loves them all. We need to examine that theology. And we will momentarily. But let's stay on course here. Repentance. And I quoted this verse earlier, but I want to put it up now so you see the whole thing. Second Peter 3 verse 9. And it reveals the, the heart of God, his love, his goodness, but at the very same time, something he absolutely requires. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Anybody say amen to that part? Oh, my, my. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. Praise God for that. But he wants something else, too. Because... Here's the deal. 
He doesn't want anybody to perish, but if you live in sin, you do perish. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you die. So he doesn't want us to perish. He's patient, but he also wants everyone. You know I'm going to do this. What's everyone? Most people except for you, right? Everyone to come to? Uh-oh. Oh, boy. That means I got to change. That's what repentance means. I got to change. It means if I'm heading north, I need to turn around and head south. It means if I'm living in darkness, I need to come out of darkness into the light. If I'm living a lie, I need to confess my sins and I need to start living the truth. It means a change. It means if I'm an alcoholic, if I'm a drug addict, if I'm an adulterer, if I'm a homosexual, if I'm a thief, I need to stop doing what I'm doing. That's what repentance means. It's not some fancy ethereal term. Well, I kind of feel like I've repented. No, it means you stopped doing what you used to do. When I got saved 40 years ago, I was a long haired hippie. I still smelled like marijuana when I walked into my first church service. I had already gotten saved. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just knew that in my desperation, Jesus came into my heart. Because you've heard my story. I was ready to jump off a bridge and commit suicide. God sent a man out on that bridge to preach the gospel to me. The Holy Spirit opened my heart, opened my eyes, and I got saved that night. I didn't know what I was doing. The guy that led me to the Lord, he took me to church. And the first church service I was ever in... The preacher, I thought he must have spotted me when I came in or something because uh, he seemed to be looking at me a lot. And it seemed at the end that the whole message was just for me because he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And he said, if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, come forward. I went running up front and I looked around me and then I realized I'm the only one up here. Didn't matter to me. I was hungry. I was thirsty. And right there, God baptized me in the Holy Spirit. But you know... My life began to change radically. And it wasn't because somebody was always hammering me, say, you know, Wayne, you need to give up those drugs now. You need to give up that weed. You need to cut off your long hair. You need to do this. Nobody told me anything. I just started changing because I wanted God. It's a turning to God, turning away from all the wrong stuff. God doesn't want us to perish, but he also wants us to repent. Luke chapter 13 from verse 1 to 5. This is an interesting passage. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now hold it there for a minute. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but you know Pontius Pilate. And he was a very evil, wicked man. And apparently he had taken some Jews and slaughtered them and actually mixed their blood in with the sacrifices. So Jesus is not in any way discounting this story. He's agreeing. This happened. Okay, keep going. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans, the ones that were murdered, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Keep going. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? You know when you hear in the news about one of these tornadoes that kills 20 or 30 people? You think those people are any more sinful than you are? Is that why they died? 
Here's Jesus' response. Next verse. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I'm a simple guy. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If you don't repent, you die. You perish. And the word perish in the Bible isn't talking about just dying and going six feet under. It's referring to the whole package, eternal damnation, separation from God, and suffering under the wrath of God for the rest of eternity. That's what perishing is. Not a very pleasant thought. But Jesus indicates without any compromise, without any apologies, that without repentance, you can expect to perish. You can claim unconditional love all you want, Meanwhile, God is saying, I didn't want you to perish, but I also wanted you to repent. I wanted you to stop doing the wrong things that you were doing. One more, Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 4. Romans chapter 2, from verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, now this is very important, God's kindness leads you somewhere. What does it do? It leads you to repentance. And I want, I want to keep this up here for a minute. A lot of people, and I hear this all the time from Christian preachers and teachers and, and different church circles, a lot of people believe that God's kindness gives them an excuse to keep living in sin. This morning when I was praying, I heard the Holy Spirit so clear. I had never even thought of this, so this is not my own cleverness trying to invent a cute phrase. This just came. God just downloaded this right into my spirit. And here's what I heard the Lord say. I made a way of escape at the cross, not a way of excuse. The cross is not to make excuses for our sins. The cross made a way for you and I to escape the corruptions of this world, to escape selfishness and greed and uncleanness, not to go on using God's love as an excuse. Well, you know, we're all human. God loves us anyway. So, I, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I have been for 30 years, but I know God loves me and he's going to take me to heaven the way I am. We'll see more about that one in a minute. Not realizing, we should realize this then, the purpose of God's kindness. And by the way, did you know God is good to everybody? Jesus said he's, he's kind to the evil, to the unjust. He makes the sun, the rain shine on everybody. Everybody gets God's blessings. He's good to everyone. But that kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. Next verse. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up unconditional love, storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be unconditional love. There will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What's every mean? Every. 
but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Two more verses. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Bottom line, God loves us. He made provision for us by sending his son to the cross. Now there's a condition that must be met. All men must come to repentance. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second requirement, if you want to use that word, or condition. We already saw this in John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish. There's a condition there. It's the condition of faith, condition of believing in Jesus. And I want to go back to John 3.16, but go a little bit further this time. John 3.16, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 18. John 3.16. Here we go. Read with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now pause. Is the whole world saved today? Is the whole world going to be saved? If you're saying yes, you need to read Revelation 20 again. Because there are many that aren't going to be saved. Jesus said, narrow is the way, few are those that are saved. Broad is the road, and many are those that are going to destruction. That's not God's fault. He so loved the world that he gave his son. But there is a condition. There's a condition for salvation. Look at the next verse. Whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Hmm. If I believe, I'm not condemned. If I don't believe, I'm already condemned. It's a condition. And I'm the one that decides my condition. I've already chosen to repent. Now I choose to believe in Jesus Christ and his word. Drop down to verse 36 while we're here in John 3. John 3, 36. Whoever. Does that mean everyone? No. There's a condition. Whoever what? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Raise both hands if you're a believer today. And thank God that you have eternal life. Thank God. It's present tense. He has eternal life. But whoever, is that everyone? No. There's a condition. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath already, it's in the present tense, remains on him. Hmm. That's heavy stuff. People that you and I have preached to, witnessed to, shared Christ with that have flat out rejected him. I didn't say this. I didn't make the rules. God did. He said, if you've rejected my son, you've basically already excluded yourself from my provision. Therefore, you're my enemy and my wrath remains upon you. Not a good place to be. 
and anyone who might even listen to this message later on through a recording, if you know you're not saved and you're not walking right with God, I would strongly recommend right now getting down on your knees, repenting, giving your life to Jesus Christ and believing in him and receiving what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. It's a free gift. So we've looked at two conditions, repent and believe. There are actually two foundations of the whole Christian life mentioned in Hebrews. Repent and believe, repent and believe. You find it everywhere in the New Testament. This third one, we're not going to like. Maybe I should leave it out, right? Actually, you're not going to like three or four. Maybe we better just end here. And we can be what Chuck Colson used to call salad bar Christians. We just go down the line and say, oh, I don't like black olives. I'm going to leave those. I'll take this lettuce. No, I don't like that dressing. I'm going to leave that. Unfortunately, we can't do that with God's word. The third one is a biggie. And it actually goes hand in hand with faith. And there are a number of scriptures that we don't have time to look at today, but they basically imply if you have one, you also have the other. Because if you have real faith, this will be the product of it. And you're probably guessing what it is. It's obedience. If Doc came running in here five minutes ago and he said, at 3.05, this whole building is going up in flames. There's a bomb. You go, I believe Doc. He's a nice guy. He's wearing a nice suit today. I told him, brother, you're the only one in here. It looks like a preacher. You should be preaching. He said, no, 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 no. So I, I believe you, Doc. I really believe you. We're good friends. And I sit here. Do I have real faith? No. My faith didn't produce any obedience. So it really is what James calls a dead faith. So real faith produces action. It produces obedience. John 14, now you can check me on this if you want, but I went through yesterday and counted these. In the Gospel of John alone, in the NIV Bible, in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus uses the conditional word if 58 times. 58 times he says, if then something, if then something, if then something. If is a conditional word. So Jesus seemed to have a lot of conditional things to say to us. And here are a couple of them. John 14, verse 21. Whoever. What's that mean? Not necessarily everyone. There's a condition. What's the condition? Whoever has my commands and obeys them. He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Now stop there. How many of you want to be loved by the Father? How many of you want to be loved by Jesus? How many of you see there's a condition there that has to be met? What is it? What's well, an easy one. I just need to love Jesus. Oh, pastor, I love Jesus. I just love Jesus. Easy to say, right? And it's, it's nice when we sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my hands. It's great to tell him you love him, but he's looking for a little bit more than that. He who has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. Now, I'm a simple guy, and a lot of times when I read the Bible, I like to take the opposite because it helps me to get the meaning a little better. So what happens if I don't obey? If I have his commands and I disobey all of them, do I love Jesus? I don't think so. 
And if I don't love Jesus, am I going to be loved by the Father? No, because there's another condition. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And there's yet another condition. If I do all of that, then I will be loved by Jesus also. Drop down to verse 23. Oh no, it's another if. Jesus replied, if anyone was anyone. <laughs> it may be you, it may not be you. You decide. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me. Oh, I love you, Lord. I feel goosebumps right now. That's wonderful. But that's not what he's looking for. How many of you know sometimes when you need to obey God, you don't feel goosebumps? You don't feel good. There's some pain involved. There's some sacrifice. There's some self-denial involved. It's not the path your flesh wants to go, but you do it because you want to love Jesus. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. You know, the other day, how many of you know the devil also will speak to us? A lot of, a lot of folks didn't put their hands up on that one. They're a little afraid. Maybe they think uh, Emmanuel is going to get him on the camera or something. The devil speaks. And he just whispered a little something to me the other day. We were going through some stuff. Uh, how many of you know you're not going to always be popular if you're a Christian? Well, we're not real popular people. And even people in our immediate family, they don't like us very much because of our stand on things like drinking and adultery and immorality and homosexuality. And the devil just whispered to me, if you would just lighten up, just compromise on some of those things, a lot more people would like you. Okay. Guess what, devil? I'm done worrying about how many people like me. I want to be loved by my father. I want to be loved by Jesus. I want to hear him say on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 8, another one of these 58 ifs. If you want some homework today, go home and count them. Check me, see if I'm right. John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If, a condition, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. I like that. Really my disciples. The condition of obedience is all through the Bible. Why? Because that's where the trouble began in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobeyed. That's called sin. Repentance is coming to God. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect at it from day one, but it's coming back to God and saying, Lord, I want to obey you now. I want to please you. I want to serve you. I want to obey your word and your commands. Help me. Okay. Condition number four. You don't want this one. I'll end here. Right? Oh boy. This is a tough group. They want it all, Pastor. Before I even introduce this, let me ask you a question. If your sins are not all forgiven, are you saved? If your sins are not all forgiven, are you going to heaven? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Okay, this is a fourth condition that Jesus spoke about very plainly, and it's forgiveness. I'm not talking about God's forgiveness for us. I'm talking about our forgiveness toward other people. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Uh-oh, you all see it? What's the second word there? If. For if you forgive men 
when they sin against you. Anybody here ever had anybody do something wrong to you? Um, I'm the only one. Praise God. Everybody else is having a perfect life. And you know that you know that you know that you were right and the other guy was wrong. Okay. So you're justified. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Condition. What's the condition? Father will forgive me if I forgive others. Okay? Next verse. But if... Oh, no. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I don't know how to mince this. And I know churches are filled to the brim with people with unforgiveness, with bitterness, with resentments, with things against a father or a mother or a brother or a pastor or somebody from 30 years ago. And they've never let go of it. And it's eating them up inside and they don't realize there's an even more serious consequence. They've cut themselves off from the Father's forgiveness of their sins. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yeah, but the pastor, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. And you don't know what they've done to me. And none of us can really comprehend what they did to Jesus. And yet he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He wasn't just giving a clever teaching here. He was talking something that he was living. He forgave his enemies. He forgave all the blasphemy, all the mocking, all the torture, all the punishment, the crucifixion. He forgave everything that people did to him. This is a condition. If you forgive, then you'll be forgiven. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. As for me and my house, I value being forgiven because I have many sins in my past record and I don't want them being brought up again. I want my sins blotted out. I want my record clear. And therefore, and I did this recently, I made a list of anybody that even still came into my mind that maybe I had a little bit of unforgiveness, a little bit of resentment, a little bit of a bad feeling from something that happened 35 or 40 years ago. And I agonize over each one of those names to make sure I have released them. I am not holding anything over any of those people because I want to be forgiven by God. And really, if you think about it, it's kind of a selfish thing. It's selfishly motivated. If you want forgiveness, then you're going to find a way by God's grace to forgive whatever other people have said or written or done to you. Okay? First John, I'm nearing the end here. And you're thinking to yourself, praise God. First John, I did some other counting yesterday. John is often called the apostle of, come on folks, John, he's the apostle of love. He talks more about love than any of the others. Well, in 1 John, his first epistle, I counted 21 times where John uses the word if. Lots of conditional statements there. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. And on and on he goes, 21 times. And here's one of them. 1 John 4, verse 20. And this really hits home. 
Because right here in this house, we've had people sitting across the aisle from each other that can't even talk to each other. Family feuds and unforgiveness. I don't know what it is, but what mockery of the gospel when we think we can come into the house of God with unforgiveness and actually sit across from someone and we hate them. John has some rather strong words for people in that category. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This happens all too often in churches. Oh, we get really into it during the praise and worship service. I love the Lord. Praise God. Hosanna in the highest. Feeling really good. And then I see that guy that I can't stand. We laugh, but it's really serious. It's in many, many churches. And we need to get to the root of it. Maybe we need some other people to help us pray through. But get the victory. Our question today is God's love unconditional? I would say with that one exception that I made, talking about God's love for the world in sending His Son to the cross, the answer is a resounding no. His love is not unconditional. And this is becoming more and more popular in Christian circles now that God loves everybody, He loves everything, and we're supposed to love everybody and love everything and accept everybody and accept everything. That is not biblical and it is heresy. And the New Testament writers warned us often about this error that would try to creep into the church even in our day. And I'm going to read three verses and then very quickly we're going to bring this to a close. Ephesians chapter 5 starting with verse 1, Ephesians 5. And I want you to notice in all three of these passages that we're going to read, a very similar statement, and I'll highlight it when we get to it. Okay? Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Notice that. We're loved children. Praise God we're loved. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, remember we're loved by God. Christ gave himself. He loves us. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Wait a minute. I thought God's love was unconditional. I could get away with all this stuff. It's not what Paul's teaching, is it? There mustn't even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. Apparently, a lot of folks today aren't sure of this. Of this you can be sure. No immoral impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Strong words. Next verse. And here's the phrase I want you to notice in all three of these passages. Paul must have known by the Holy Spirit that in even in his day and certainly in ours, these things would get so twisted around that we would need to hear these words. Let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived on what we just read. 
in those previous verses. If you hear a preacher or a teacher or somebody on Christian radio or Christian TV saying, oh, it doesn't matter. God loves everybody. You can continue in your adultery. You can continue being a homosexual. God loves you just the way you are. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 1 Corinthians 6, from verse 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here it is again. Do not be deceived. What's the deception he's warning against? Thinking that all these people he's about to list are going to enter the kingdom of God the way they are. They're not. They're not. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual believers. What does it say? Homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. And we're not just picking on homosexuals here. There are plenty of folks raising their hands. I'm not talking about in this church, but across the land. Plenty of people raising their hands in churches this morning. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Praise the Lord. And they're having an affair with their secretary. They're not going to heaven. They're under God's wrath. They need to repent. There are people in churches that have a drinking problem. They're alcoholics. They're drug addicts. They're not going to heaven. They need to be set free. They need to repent. There are gossips and slanderers in churches talking always bad stuff about the church, about the pastor. Oh, these pastors don't know what they're talking about. These pastors don't know what they're doing. Oh, so-and-so, she doesn't even know how to pray. He doesn't know how to sing. On and on the slander goes, and we think, oh, I'm going to heaven. No, you're not. No, I'm not, unless I repent. Don't be deceived, Paul says. These folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here comes the good news, verse 11. And that is what some of you were, past tense. That is what some of you were. Maybe you were an alcoholic. Maybe you were a gossip. Maybe you were an adulterer. Maybe you were a homosexual. Praise God, it's in the past tense. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think we're weakening the power of the gospel when we compromise on this issue and say, oh, God loves you so much, he excuses you the way you are. No, God loves you so much, he sent his son to cause you to escape from the life you're living, to have the power to be set free from those sins. And finally, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. I appreciate your patience with me this morning. I know this is a little long and a little tedious, but I think it's needful. Galatians 6, where have we seen these words? Do not be deceived. Why why does the apostle keep writing this to the churches? It must be that churches tend to get deceived. And they need to be reminded of the truth, brought back to the bedrock of God's word and not popular opinion. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. It's a, it's a physical law and it's a spiritual law. You sow wheat seeds, you're going to grow wheat, not oranges. You sow to the sinful nature, from that nature you will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap 
eternal life. Don't be deceived on this. The, the life you and I live, our day-to-day lives, it's kind of like sowing seeds. You know the seeds you're sowing. Whether you're sowing time into Bible reading, prayer, sharing your faith with others, fasting, worshiping God, loving people, walking uprightly with God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, or seeds of selfishness, greed, impurity, uncleanness, and on and on. It doesn't matter how much you claim unconditional love, you're going to reap what you're sowing. That's why Paul says, don't be deceived about this. The life you live will either come back to reward you and bless you with a great harvest of righteousness and peace and joy or destruction. Okay, finally, knowing all these things, what should be our attitude? What should be our response? And if indeed what we have been reading here is the scripture, and this is really the way it is, should our attitude be one of, eh, it doesn't really matter. Let the chips fall where they do. Ah, I'll, I'll kind of do whatever I want with my life. You know, I'll go to church once in a while, read my Bible when I feel like it, but you know, I'm not going to really take this stuff too seriously. Unfortunately, that's the attitude that pervades the church in America now. It's an apathetic, lackadaisical, I'll do it my way kind of a Christianity. And we're reaping the benefits. Look at the state of the country. And I would maintain that the first and greatest response that we would see in our lives if we really truly believe what we've been sharing about here today is fearing God. Fearing God. You know, the fear of God is an amazing thing. The Bible says it's the beginning of knowledge and it's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning. Not something you get at the end. It's how you start knowing and how you start understanding when you fear God. I pray over this a lot nowadays. I see the lack of the fear of God at every level in our society, from the White House right on down. Lies and corruption and all sorts of things are done without any impunity, no fear whatsoever of a holy God who has already declared to us in his word what's right and what's wrong. No fear. In Revelation 14, there's a very interesting scripture that I want to leave with you. Revelation 14 describes a future that's coming very soon where an angel will actually be preaching the gospel from heaven. I don't have time to go into all the details, but trust me, it's, it's going to happen. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And this is the only place that I know of in the Bible where it talks about the eternal gospel. This angel will be preaching the eternal gospel. And I think we do well to pay attention to what his gospel message is. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Okay, what's his message? He said in a loud voice, unconditional love. Right? He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Paul, writing to the Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Where do we see that in the world today? Where is the fear of God? Where is the trembling when God's word is spoken? Prophet Isaiah spoke on behalf of the Lord and he said, tremble at my words. Tremble when you hear God speaking to you. In other words, take it seriously. And finally, 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 and this is where I conclude. Back to 2 Peter chapter 3, where we were earlier. 2 Peter 3 from verse 9, but we're going to go a little further now to conclude. Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. My friends, this is fast approaching. It's fast approaching. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a very good question. If this is all going up in smoke, what kind of people should we be? He answers this question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to tell you where I've come in my life. I want to go be with Jesus. I want to fulfill my destiny down here. I want to complete my assignment, but I want to go. This place is not my home. This is not where I plan to spend eternity. And once my job is done here, whew, we sang it on Friday night. When I die, don't cry for me. Don't cry at my funeral. Because man, I have arrived then. That's what this whole thing is about. We're looking forward to something. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort. Make every effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make every effort. Make every effort to come to church. Make every effort to come to prayer. Make every effort to come to Bible study. Make every effort to share your faith with other people. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Please stand with me. What should I do? What should you do? Repent, believe, obey, and forgive. You know your life better than I do. God knows your life better than you do. And if you will open up your heart to the Holy Spirit, he may just whisper a few things to you today or the rest of this week. Some areas that need to change. That's called repentance. Maybe it's in your attitude. Attitude needs to change. Maybe it's in your perspective. Your perspective, your vision needs to be changed. Maybe you know that you're flat out disobeying something God's been speaking to you about doing. Obey. Repent. 
believe, obey, and last but not least, if you've got a little list, if you're keeping a little record of what so-and-so did to you and what so-and-so said about you, I would write down those names and you might even want to list out all the things that you're still holding against that person and go one by one down the list and release them. Pray over each one of those things. Say, Father, I forgive them in the name of Jesus. I release whatever they've done to me. Hold it not against them. I want to be free. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word. I have no other place to stand today but your word. I care not about human opinion. I care not even about my own opinions. I want to know the truth because you said when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And Lord, we want to know you. We don't want to know an imaginary Jesus that we've made up. We want to know the real Jesus. We want to know the real Father. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding to know you better. Fill us with a knowledge of your will. Help us to know your ways. Help us understand your word. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, in these last days where there's so much confusion, so much deception, help us to walk on that narrow road that you said leads to life and life eternal. Now, Father, seal this word in our hearts. Give us grace to live every word that we've heard and not just be hearers. And Father, we pray that somehow we can impact our world, our generation, our family, our neighborhood, people that we work with, Use each one of us in a singular way this week to touch other lives. And we'll praise you and bless you for it. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen.